What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. I'm Deirdre Boza, and you're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with John Ford and Deirdre Bosa. This hour, Disney employees walk out. CEO Bob Chapek responds. We've got details live from the company's headquarters. Plus, Baba with this enormous buyback. Shares are up double digits today, 50% in the last week. And then cyber attacks top of mind for Washington. Okta shares down after suffering its own breach, reportedly. We'll have what stocks could benefit from investments in that space, D. We're going to start with the markets. The Nasdaq snapping a four-day winning streak. Comments from Fed Chair Powell signaling more aggressive rate hikes. That put pressure on stocks yesterday. That has not been the story for the prior week, though, when we have seen a ferocious rally. And some stark moves in the mega caps. NVIDIA, Tesla, Amazon, and Meta all up double digits. Apple, uh, Alphabet, excuse me, and Microsoft and Apple. Those are also outperforming. We talked about Anaplan yesterday, BTIG, giving you another idea this morning, initiating on Datadog at a buy. Stocks rallying over the last week, but it is still down to start the year. This is a stock that has fared better than many others in the tech and especially cloud uh, sector. Guys, it's another day, though, of big gains for the Nasdaq. We're seeing this outperformance, John, up 1.6%. Yeah, I mean, that's, I'm not convinced. I don't know. I mean, everything seems to be up, roughly speaking, uh, technology-wise, since that, what was it, uh, March 14th low, and and the mega caps are following suit. A lot of growth stocks higher as well, Carl, but uh, there's been so much volatility that it's hard to draw a storyline versus just kind of like the story of a ping-pong match, it feels like. Uh, indeed. We're watching Amazon, uh, D, which is trying to get back above uh, the flat line for the year to date. And of course, uh, with Adobe tonight, you know, we're going to be definitely on on edge looking for signs that maybe some of the disappointments in the past couple of quarters relative to expectations might be reversed if guidance is a little bit more bullish. Yeah, it's going to be really important to look at these mega caps. We talked a little bit about this yesterday, but that ferocious rally we saw last week was in a lot of the unprofitable tech names, the ARC names. But what we're seeing now, and you just saw that board, is the mega caps following suit and perhaps, John, a more solid foundation for a market comeback. Uh, Maybe so. Let's talk about it. Our next guest is a longtime tech investor, sees risk to owning large cap stocks in this environment, leading his funds to hold their lowest large cap tech exposure in their history. Joining us now, Jacob Asset Management's Ryan Jacob. Uh, Ryan, good morning. So um, what, what is a large cap these days? I mean, now we've got mega caps. What, what do you call a large cap? I, I think you can comfortably call anything over $100 billion a large cap. Uh, now that we're in the, <laughs> the age where trillion-dollar companies uh, aren't, aren't as rare uh, or exist now, um, you know, we have a whole, whole other range to look at. But generally speaking, we have reduced our large and mega cap holdings. And we do have one of the uh, 
smallest allocations, probably under 5% in our strategies allocated to these larger names. Now, why is that? I mean, these days, ServiceNow, even Airbnb is a hair above $100 billion, uh, in this environment. Uh, Qualcomm, Intel, uh, et cetera, uh, are, are all in that category. Even some names that have significant growth, though I know that uh, your concern is that uh, the, the smaller and medium-sized uh, stocks are going to have a better chance of posting that uh, important growth on the fundamental level in this inflationary environment. Well, I think when you look at the distinction, you know, growth names, I know with rising interest rates, investors are very cautious with growth names. I think we believe that there should be a distinction between higher growth, um, higher growth, growth names and lower, more mature company growth names. So when you look at an Intel or a Qualcomm, you know, these may be GDP plus three plus five percent type growers. A lot of the small mid cap companies that we favor uh, they're growing 30 or 40 percent more or more a year. So they're more able to overcome, you know, a slight rise in interest rates. When you look at the more mature tech companies, they're really being uh, valued based on current earnings and cash flow yields. So uh, they probably will act more bond like in terms of seeing compression and valuation multiples. But uh, we're seeing the better opportunities now definitely in, in the smaller cap space. Yeah, although, um, you know, you can never be too careful. I mean, a lot of these giants can be creative. Uh, Alphabet's a good example today where there's different ad formats. They're going to try to leverage travel and auto on this, uh, you know, reopening uh, post-COVID, which can maybe make up for some tough comps in, in retail and e-commerce. I wonder, I mean, how much of the, of the names, the large names that you think you may be a little suspect about, which, uh, which do you favor uh, the most? Well, it, it's funny. Actually, Alphabet is kind of the last man standing for us. Alphabet is our uh, only remaining uh, mega cap company that we own, and it's still a small position. Uh, but when you look at Alphabet, um, they're still growing very comfortably over 20% a year. Um, when you look at the margin profile, uh, we believe that Alphabet will have a problem similar to Apple had a few years ago, where, quite frankly, they're generating too much cash. Um, you know, they uh, won't be able to make any sizable acquisitions. The cash is building on the balance sheet very, very quickly. So we think we'll see continued upping of buybacks there. And you combine that with 20 percent plus growth. That's really the reason why that one still remains in our portfolio. Ryan, you know, a lot of our guests argue, though, that big tech is the much safer place to be in an uncertain macro environment with rising rates. Um, Some of these smaller names, yes, they are growing, but you know, the market is trying to figure out whether they're features or platforms. Isn't there more risk when you're going into these names, when you're seeing these valuation compressions? And, you know, we don't still know where they're going to settle. Could some of them be well, washed of course, out? Uh, uh, of course, there's more risk. I think, as John pointed out, uh, a lot of the tech market has been in a bear market now for about 12 months. Uh, and that started with the small, more speculative, expensive names. And then really, it was only until January that we saw that uh, kind of reach up to the largest mega cap names and be affected. Our guess is that when we come out of this tech bear market, uh, we'll see those smaller, more expensive names actually outperform initially uh, in the same way that they were the first to get hit uh, roughly 12 months ago. Um, I think, you know, w- with everything going on in the world, it's, it's, it's very difficult. I think, you know, if we had not seen the geopolitical issues come to fore, I think we'd be in a much better place right now. I'm not sure the market's as afraid of higher interest rates. I think you know, we need to remember that higher interest rates are indicative uh, of a healthy economy. Um, if we had terminally low interest rates, 
Um, I'm not so sure that would really uh, get investors comfortable with where the, econo- uh, the economy stands. So um, we actually welcome slightly higher interest rates here. And, uh, you know, I think it, if you look back also in history over time, whether it's the last decade or the last, actually, you can look back 60 years. Uh, the Wall Street Journal did a, a recently an article on this where they looked at durations and how, um, you know, generally smaller cap companies do better in a rising interest rate environment. Mm. And that's because it's indicative of a healthier economy. What's, so, uh, uh, yeah. Well, what, what's the yardstick, Ryan, that you're using valuation wise to determine what these stocks are worth? Is it a certain revenue growth multiple? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And I think it's some, it's a place where investors uh, can easily get tripped up. I mean, you don't want to get into a situation where you're using uh, overly optimistic modeling. Um, you can get creative with your numbers as, as valuations expand. Uh, I think when you look at our top holdings, I mean, we do own companies that do trade at maybe 10, 15 times revenue. Uh, they tend to be some of our smaller positions, and they also tend to have you know, really some of the largest TAMs that, that, that we can, um, you know, that, that, that we profile for. So, you know, when you're looking at valuations, it's important to recognize the opportunity, um, but also, uh, you know, kind of where they stand in their business life in terms of their cycle. And if we feel confident that they have 30, 40 or 50 percent growth ahead of them for a number of years, we'll be much more lenient on valuation. But you'd be surprised when you look at a lot of our top holdings, um, you're not going to find as many of the 10, 15 times revenue type situations. A lot of our larger holdings you can value on EBITDA, even okay. though they're not kind of the mega cap names that, uh, that, that most people talk about. All right. Um, a fresh perspective. Uh, Ryan, thank you. Ryan Jacob thank you. from Jacob Asset Management. Turning this morning to Disney, the employee walkout beginning at 11 a.m. Eastern time. This is focused on the company's response to that so-called don't say gay bill in Florida. That's where we expect the bulk of the protest as well. Our Julia Borston is outside Disney HQ in Burbank. Morning, Julia. Good morning to you, Carl. Well, here I am at Disney headquarters in Burbank, California, and there's no sign of the walkout protest that was scheduled to start right now. So we don't know how many employees are protesting elsewhere or how many are doing a virtual walkout and posting an out-of-office message right now. But it is notable that this morning all of Disney's different properties, including ESPN and Disney World, tweeted their support for the LGBTQ plus community. And this comes after yesterday at a virtual meeting, Disney CEO Bob Chapek acknowledged his missteps and announced some new plans to help address the frustration that you just mentioned about that Florida bill. Now, Chapek said he wants to use this moment as a catalyst for meaningful change. And in addition to working with those fighting the Florida bill and pausing donations in the state, he announced some new steps. First, Chapek is going to go on what he calls a listening tour to hear employee concerns around the world. Second, he announced a new company-wide task force focused on developing a strategy and concrete actions to engage the LGBTQ plus employees and creators to be a force for good for those communities with a specific focus on developing more LGBTQ plus content. And he also revealed that the company has signed the human rights campaign opposing the Texas policy that criminalizes parents providing gender affirming care for transgender minors. Now, these moves do address many of the demands of the group that organized the walkout scheduled for this morning. But the organizers tell us that yesterday's session 
did, was, quote, a great opportunity for the company to specifically address our concerns. But unfortunately, we didn't hear much of a plan. They go on to say, quote, we still see the walkout as necessary to communicate to leadership just how important this change is to us, saying this change is bigger than the don't say gay bill in Florida. Cultural change is needed. And there are many more bills on the way across the country. Now, sources do tell me that the temperature, the level of outrage, it has cooled since last week as employees see Disney very much engaging with these issues. Of course, the big question is what comes next, guys? Julia, um, can you compare what you're seeing with Disney here to what we saw with Netflix a few months ago after the Dave Chappelle special and concerns among employees that uh, Netflix management wasn't sufficiently sensitive to the issue uh, issues of transgender uh, employees and the culture in general. How, when you look at how Netflix, uh, Sarandos, um, and and Hastings handled that, and the way Disney is handling this, are there similarities and stark differences? There are similarities and differences, and I would say the biggest differences are in the types of companies that Netflix and Disney are. Netflix is sort of seen more as, as an open platform, if you will. They license a lot of content. They've obviously lately been investing in making a lot more content themselves, but they have a really wide variety of content on that platform, a lot of which is considered, uh, you know, sort of more risque or some of it has been considered offensive by various groups. Disney is very different uh, in terms of the fact that this is a brand that stands for something. It stands for supporting families and especially uh, under Bob Iger's leadership for 15 years as a company that sort of stood for centrist Democrat values uh, and was very much seen as a company that was aimed to support families and also yeah. support diversity. Um, so I think this does feel different in that the companies are just so vastly different. And also, once you get into the legal things and what the political yeah. donations are, it becomes about much more than one single piece of content. Julia, that's a great distinction between the types of content that each of these companies are producing. We've talked in the past about whether Disney needs to branch out uh, from its current sort of demographic and audience. Do you think that what we're seeing now could shape that? I know we talked about like horrors and thrillers, but if they wanted to even get a little edgier, would this perhaps give Chapek pause? Well, look, we have to also have to remember that Disney did buy Fox, right? Disney bought the entertainment assets of Fox, which included the Fox studio, which does make that kind of edgy, mm -hmm. mature, sophisticated content targeting adults, right? So that is not franchise content. Um, that is films like Nightmare Alley, which are rated R, you know, and they are making those types of films. So I think what you're really talking about, Deirdre, is whether or not they were going to pull that kind of content mm -hmm. under the Disney brand and make it part of that Disney Plus bundle. And I think that's much more how they decide to go out in terms of yeah. streaming. Um, and I do think there is a question of how that kind of content fits with the brand. But I think what we're really dealing with here is the sort of the cultural issues and, and whether Disney wants to be donating to these political causes that cause so much outrage mm -hmm. and frustration among their uh, employee base. Okay, Julie, I know it's still early here on the West Coast, so we'll check in with you to see what happens with the walkout. Thank you. Let's get a gut check on Alibaba raising its share buyback program to $25 billion, a push to prop up the stock following regulator scrutiny and growth concerns. Alibaba just increased its buyback program back in August, but that failed to stop the selling. Of course, this follows last month's report of the company's lowest ever quarterly revenue growth since going public in 2014. Alibaba is up more than 13 percent today. So, of course, guys, these Chinese tech names have been incredibly volatile. Take the longer view. 
This stock is down 50 percent over the last year. So even this comeback that we have seen uh, just brings it back to still beaten down levels. The timing of this, though, guys, is important. It comes after Beijing. Xi Jinping and Liu He have said that they're going to support the markets and the economy and sort of finish up this crackdown on big tech. Question is, John, do the companies even know when that's really over? Yeah, I mean, okay. so that's what they say now. And yes, the stock has surged back to the levels of a month ago. But, Carl, we've still had several people saying these stocks are uninvestable. I'm not sure if this latest move changes that. I mean, they're certainly tradable. Uh, (laughs) They're definitely tradable. But what can you count on when it comes to these, especially as Dee mentioned, uh, you know, Bob is down, been cut in half over 12 months. Uh, Yeah, well, you can count on continued volatility, Dee. I mean, it's on the one hand, you almost want to search for the pattern of when do they allow the stock to run and then when do they clamp down? We've seen this in multiple mm-hmm. industries, but in order to do that, uh, you have to be extremely brave and extremely nimble, as our Cashin might say. Indeed. Indeed. Well, still to come, the White House warns Russia may be expanding cyber attacks. Plus, we look ahead to NVIDIA's Investor Day. Tech Check, just getting started. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. NVIDIA's Investor Day kicks off this afternoon. The semiconductor ETF, SNH, down 12% this year, about equal to the S&P's declines. Uh, Christina Partsonevelis has more on what's ahead for NVIDIA, especially after that deal to buy ARM fell through. Christina. Well, we know tech stocks have had a frustrating start to the year, and graphics specialist NVIDIA is no exception. The stock is actually down about 9% on the year after it failed, like you mentioned, to acquire SoftBank's arm, and actually faced a cyber attack recently. But the bulls are back, anticipating updates on data centers and NVIDIA's push into artificial intelligence, which I'd like to point out right now, the CEO is giving a keynote, and that's all he's spoken about thus far. A Cowan analyst did note that NVIDIA's sales tied to the metaverse, you know, the shift towards interacting digitally could reach 10 billion bucks by 2030. NVIDIA, we know, is known for its graphics processing units, which are found in data centers, as well as high-powered graphics cards used for gaming. And both of those set up quite well for the metaverse. NVIDIA's data center revenue, as an example, was up 71% just last quarter. 
It's not all rosy, though. NVIDIA has faced supply constraints with gaming parts. You have third-party pricing drops from the likes of the AMD, which could mean increased competition. And, of course, the previously stated $8 billion auto backlog because of what's going on in Ukraine and Russia. And its stretch valuation, about 170% higher than the average, could leave some investors a little bit uncomfortable holding this stock in this risk-adverse market. NVIDIA's management will need to provide data points on how these segments will be handled for a positive acceleration of the stock. So far, Wall Street is definitely betting that's going to happen today. Christina, thanks. We're going to stick with NVIDIA for the moment. Uh, Joining us for a closer look at what to expect from their investor day, Bernstein Senior Semis Analyst Stacey Razgon. Stacey, good to have you back. Uh, To Christina's point, I I wonder, you've got to now perform a 325 is this a stock that's being driven by sort of next-gen aspirational horizon stuff or just more guidance on their ability to be tactical, manage supply chain, and so forth? Well, I think the, the, the latter is important you know, for the near term. But, I mean, look, th- this stock, it, it's a package of, like, like, open-ended option values. Like, this is the nice thing about NVIDIA is they're out there creating new markets. They're creating big TAMs. I, I mean, the ultimate opportunity in some sense can be as big as you want it to be. And so far, they've been delivering against the, those kinds of ideals. So this, this is why it gets the multiple that it does. And this is why investors have, have been enamored of it, I mean, for, for, for quite a while now. But, I mean, they're, they're really out there creating new markets and, and actually executing against that. So, yeah. Right. So of those new addressable TAMs, what's most exciting? Give me, give me which industries you think are going to be the, uh, the ones to focus on. Yeah, yeah, I mean, obviously, data center is the one that everybody looks at. And I, I am hugely bullish on their long-term data center opportunity. Um, there's a paradigm shift going on as we reach the limits of prior data center architectures. We need to do something else to keep performance and efficiency growing. We're offloading workloads into other types of silicon that they are providing. And, and I think the opportunity for that is, over time, massive. And I think we're still early. If you can look at their revenues relative to, like, how big I think this is, I think we've still got a lot of headroom there. The other one that people are getting really excited about is software. And I, you, know, you mentioned the metaverse earlier uh, here. And I'll be honest, I'm, I'm a little, maybe a little too boomer. I'm still trying to wrap my head around the overall metaverse opportunity. But in some sense, they're out there creating software that this could ride on. Um, they've got um, what they call AI Enterprise. They've got uh, NVIDIA Omniverse. You can think about like sizing these things. And again, they, they can get blue sky like, like very, very quick. And we can be talking about like, like many, many billions of dollars over time. And today it's nascent. I mean, it, it's, it's tiny. So these are the kinds of things that investors are getting really excited about if you're taking the long-term view on this stuff. Yeah, Stacey, really excited. Uh, you know, NVIDIA's got about four times the market cap of, uh, of Qualcomm, I think. And you're not alone in that metaverse thing. But why not? Why not embrace the narrative, especially since... I, look, I, I'm willing to embrace it. Like, it's <laughs> fine. It's fine. I just got to wrap my head around it. Yeah, um, it's a lot to wrap your head around. But um, why won't NVIDIA get taken down with some of the momentum stocks, even visionary stocks like Tesla, given now that its market cap is bigger than Facebook, bigger than uh, Visa? What, what is it about NVIDIA that they've got to continue to show to maintain where they are right now? Well, you know, it already has been taken down. I mean, we had this, this pretty sizable growth rotation earlier in the year, and I mean, NVIDIA is down fairly sizably from where it was at the peak. And I think it said it was trading about 40 times earnings wherever it is right now. I mean, it was probably 60 times earnings not that long ago. So it's already come down, like, on the broader growth rotation. Um, and the numbers have done nothing but, but skyrocket. I mean, it's been astonishing how large the positive revisions have been here. So, I mean, obviously, they need to keep that up, but they need to keep the dream alive. That's, that's really what's going to be important. 
There's a broader Same. debate in the space going on right now in broader semis. This kind of peak cycle versus stronger for longer. I do find myself a little more in the peak cycle camp. We may have talked about that, you know, now, now and then. But in that environment, one of the things I do like are, are things that are more secular versus cyclically driven. I do think NVIDIA mm. fits very nicely into that secular bucket. So it is something that we like here. And after the okay, pullback, so- I think there's a good opportunity. Stacey, it's Deirdre. Uh, talk about the place that crypto may play in NVIDIA's TAM. We're talking to Ethereum co-founder Joe Lubin later in the program, and we're going to ask him about the upcoming merge to proof of stake. The shift has been cited as some as a potential threat to NVIDIA's graphics card products. So do you think that we'll get anything there? What do you think the implications are? I, the thing is, like, NVIDIA doesn't really know how much of their gaming business is being driven by crypto, and, and, and really nobody does. You can try to size it, but it's very difficult, and the error bars are like that wide. So it's hard to know. Is it a potential risk? Yes. I think if it happens, it's temporary. Um, I do think this, the secular growth for gaming is is, is there. We've, we've seen this before. We had a cycle like at the end of calendar 2018, beginning of 2019. It, it, it hurt, but it was temporary. At some point, it's not going to matter anymore. Like, like in my model, I've got data set of them larger than gaming this year. Right? Mm-hmm. So at some point, like like crypto, whatever it's going to be, you know, is, is not going to be a material driver one way or the other anymore. And I'll be honest, you know, at some point, it's a little more mainstream now than it used to be. There are other drivers now that are different from what hit them last time. So, I mean, it is a risk. I almost part of me wishes if, if it's going to happen, it would just happen and get it over with. <laughs> because I think that a lot of investors are actually waiting for that. It's kind of like the, yeah. the one last thing that needs to fall where people can probably get comfortable with it. <laughs> wow, that says a lot about how innovation gets absorbed. Uh, pretty incredible. Yeah. We'll see what we get uh, later on today. Stacey, thanks. Stacey Rasmussen for joining us from Brisbane. After the break, a warning that cyber attacks are on the rise and Okta a victim. So are there stocks that will benefit from increased spend in the space? Stay with us. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com methane. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Deirdre Bosa and John Ford. Social stocks, some of the big winners today in a pretty good tape. We'll have more on the battle for market share in digital ads in just a moment. First, though, a news update with Rahel Solomon. Hey, Rahel. Hi, Carl. Good morning. Here's what's happening at this hour. Treasury yields jumping again. Two and ten-year notes have hit fresh highs going back nearly three years. That's after Fed Chair Powell raised the possibility of bigger Fed interest rate hikes. Shares of Carnival falling about 1%. The cruise line posting big top and bottom line misses for the first quarter. Carnival expects losses to continue in Q2, but forecasts a profit in the third quarter as booking trends hopefully improve. 
Oil prices giving back some of yesterday's gains. U.S. crude briefly dropped below $110 per barrel. Prices are getting support from a possible European Union embargo on Russian oil imports, although CNBC is told that that's unlikely at this point at least. And in London, nickel trading slowly returning to normal. Volume is way up. And for the first time in more than a week, the nickel contract did not hit its downside trading limit. John, I'll send it back to you. Rahel, thank you. The White House warning Russia might expand cyber attacks against the U.S. At the same time, OctaShares down this morning after the cybersecurity and identity company uh, suffered an apparent attack of its own, though it's not clear on the timing of that and the continuing vulnerability. Frank Holland is looking at that attack and what companies are doing to protect themselves. Frank? Hey there, John. You know, OctaShare is falling hard on the news, as you would expect. Um, the cybersecurity company suffered its own breach, ironically, need them out with a note today saying that Okta, along with a number of other companies, including Palo Alto Networks, Sentinel One, Zscaler, a number of uh, other cyber stocks in that basket, should actually benefit directly from an expected uptick in cybersecurity spending from the president's executive order yesterday, as well as the Strengthening American Cybersecurity Act that passed just last week. Let's dig into that Biden executive order. It advised companies to use multi-factor authentication. That's when you log on and you send a text or an email to verify your identity. Also, engage with the FBI and the U.S. Cybersecurity Infrastructure and Security Infrastructure Agency proactively. And third, they, the, the EO specifically telling companies to build cybersecurity from the ground up instead of adding patches to existing networks. EU leaders, they're meeting with Biden to discuss banning Russian oil exports. The former head of cybersecurity research for AT&T says those talks alone are a catalyst for cyber attacks. Making sure that the West understand that, hey, they, they have some tools that they can utilize uh, to counter those sanctions. So, you know, anything from ransomware attacks to even some of those wiper attacks that we saw in Ukraine at the beginning of the conflict are, are likely to happen. Other cybersecurity experts say transportation and infrastructure would be the most likely targets of an initial cyber attack with Shenzhen, the world's third largest port in China, uh, limited by COVID and current U.S. supply chain tightness. Transport CEOs I spoke to say an attack on a major company will be simply devastating. Back over to you. Uh, Frank, so um, you talk about the possibility in these analyst reports of continued investments in uh, cybersecurity companies. But at the same time, we see Okta shares reacting to uh, the reports of this breach, which might be from January, might not uh, unclear. That seems to speak to just volatility in the space, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I think right now, John, what you're speaking to is the fact that when companies report that they've been hacked, they have an issue. We don't really know the time frame. And that's really a lot about what uh, what the act that was passed like last week is really about. Um, companies now under this act are supposed to report any type of cybersecurity breach or any issue within 72 hours to the U.S. government. If they pay a ransomware attack, they're supposed to report that within 24 hours. And that would give a lot more clarity, at least under the bill's design, to the, not only the government, but other companies about what's going on when it comes to cybersecurity and just how intense the attack was or if their companies are also in danger. Frank Holland, thank you for that. You. And after the break, a deeper look at Robinhood, why they think fair change is the future of growth. Stock is down 65% since its IPO. Don't go away.
Robinhood built its reputation on easy stock trading options and then a huge boom in crypto investing. But today it is announcing some new products and they look pretty similar to an old fashioned bank. Kate Rooney has the details. Kate, this was pretty much inevitable. All of fintech eventually is heading that way. Looking more and more like a bank, right, Dee? It's, uh, it's interesting to watch as Robinhood is looking to some of the less exciting parts of finance as the meme stock and retail boom fades. The startup announcing a cash card and savings account on Tuesday, which lets users invest spare change from transactions into stocks or crypto. Say something costs five seventy-five, it will auto-invest the remaining twenty-five cents of that transaction. Also offering direct deposit and early access to paychecks. And this is one of a handful of some of the less uh, flashy products on Robinhood's roadmap. Think retirement accounts and four hundred one ks. And it signals a different growth strategy with more banking versus trading products. I spoke to Robinhood's. Chief Product Officer Aparna Shenapragada about this. She says it's a way to drive user growth and expand the definition of investing. She also says that some of these smaller investments cater to what she calls the crypto curious who might not be ready to go all in. You can actually turn your spending, like your spare cup of uh, spare change from a cup of coffee into crypto, right? Investing in crypto. And that's a far less intimidating, um, far less um, high risk view of just like starting to get access into an emerging ecosystem like crypto. Uh, another uh, idea that we are kind of pushing on, what we call this is like embedded crypto. This idea of like crypto comes with the product. Um, same thing with the spending account. You can split your paycheck. You can say, hey, some part of it goes into crypto so that you're not feeling like you got to go all in on this uh, emerging ecosystem. The product suite puts Robinhood in direct competition with Chime, Acorns, and Stash, as well as PayPal, Block, and SoFi. Some of those names really getting hit this year. Robinhood, for one, is down about 80% from that high. D. So, Kate, I wonder, how do they monetize something like this? What does it mean for the bottom line? It's not like a payment for order flow where they're getting paid on the back end. Yeah, so this is through interchange. That's how a lot of uh, companies, Chime included, make money. They get a, tr- a slice of the transaction from the card payment. So probably a loss leader in a lot of ways. Right. I mean, it might add something to the, to the top line, at least, uh, but pro- not, not as lucrative as payment for order flow, a different way to gain revenue. But also, uh, Shana Pragada talked about bringing new users in, mm-hmm. saying those who might be looking for a different banking experience and having a savings or banking account next to your brokerage account. Right. And that's been so key, right? Robinhood has really sort of stalled out and adding those users. And then you got PayPal not even looking at users anymore, but average revenue per user. Exactly. Uh, Higher quality right. users. Kate, thank you so much. Meantime, blockchain startup Consensus doubling its valuation to $7 billion in its latest funding round. The round included a rare crypto-related investment from Microsoft alongside other investors such as SoftBank and Singapore's Tomasic. The round comes as Consensus's Ethereum wallet, MetaMask, reaches more than 30 million monthly active users. Here to discuss Consensus founder and CEO Joseph Lubin, who is also the co-founder of Ethereum. Joe, it's great to have you with us this morning. I want to start pretty broad because I think that a lot of our audience looks set Ethereum as a store of value, something that goes up or down. What do they need to know about its use case and about blockchain technology? Um, So, yeah, something that goes up and down um, in a volatile fashion isn't uh, necessarily uh, a great store of value unless uh, you uh, are have noticed that uh, it's been going up uh, uh, for many years. And that's the case uh, uh, for most of the tokens uh, in the blockchain ecosystem. 
Um, essentially, this is a paradigm shift. Uh, we're moving from the age of silos to the age of community, and we're building a new trust foundation uh, for the planet. And that new trust foundation has enabled uh, decentralized finance, a global uh, decentralized finance platform uh, that is enabling a very wide variety of applications to be built. Um, some of those applications that are essentially enabling businesses to be disintermediated um, take the form of non-fungible tokens, which uh, in the early instantiations are enabling uh, creators and content owners to directly access their, their customers. Right. So, Joe, disintermediation, decentralization, this is sort of the ethos behind Ethereum. But take the NFT market, for example, and many say that it's becoming increasingly centralized. You have a few big players, OpenSea as a platform, Yuga Labs for IP, Andreessen Horowitz as an investor. How do you reconcile that centralization with the fundamentals? Um, so it's a bit of a gold rush and uh, and people um, take uh, expedient steps to, to establish market share, uh, whether you're a VC uh, or whether you're uh, an NFT platform. Um, the direction of travel in our ecosystem and in our company consensus is, is towards progressive decentralization. Uh, so we find product market fit um, and and then we work uh, diligently to decentralize. Uh, we're seeing that uh, across the ecosystem where lots of DeFi protocols are decentralizing. Um, Many projects are exiting to community, establishing decentralized organizations to, to govern themselves. In. And we will see a powerful um, movement towards decentralization in the NFT space. Even so, Joseph, right at this moment, as you say, it's sort of a land grab and we're seeing the big get even bigger. So walk us through how decentralization happens from here, how we're going to see sort of these existing players like OpenSea disrupted by the community. Sure. So um, we operate uh, some important projects. Uh, MetaMask is one. Uh, Infura is another. It handles uh, a ton of the reads and writes in the Ethereum and related ecosystems. And and across consensus, uh, many of our projects are working towards progressively decentralizing themselves. So that uh, involves turning projects um, that are um, essentially platforms into decentralized platforms uh, that can involve turning them into protocol uh, where lots of different actors can can work together on that protocol collaboratively, or um, it involves or can involve uh, creating decentralized organizations for the governance of those projects. Right. And it feels like you're taking this ethos to your own cap table. Consensus has a very diverse one, ranging from traditional banks to crypto companies. Now, Microsoft, a part of the latest round. What about Consensus or Ethereum unites all of these industries, all of these companies? Well, it's, uh, it's a paradigm shift. Uh, the, the world is turning upside down. Um, we've been operating in a world where uh, corporations service their customers um, often in an adversarial approach. Um, and there is recognition that, uh, that we need um, to re-architect the world um, and put the user uh, at the center um, and create uh, a world where um, individuals and, and small groups have economic and political agency. And um, we have a, a tremendous group of strategic and financial investors um, uh, who see that vision um, and and are leaning in heavily to that vision. 
Joe, we talked earlier on in the program about the proof of stake merger, that upcoming merger. Why does it matter in terms of Ethereum's practical use? And maybe talk about how it differentiates Ethereum from other blockchain technologies like Cardano and Polkadot. So Ethereum 1 and Ethereum 2 are running currently. Ethereum 1 is the execution chain. Ethereum 2 is the consensus chain. They're merging. Um, some people think it'll be in June. Some people think it'll be in July, uh, but it's soon. Uh, the merge effectively removes the energetically wasteful um, proof-of-work consensus mechanism and replaces it with uh, an orders of magnitude, uh, more efficient uh, proof of stake consensus mechanism. Essentially, it uh, it removes the uh, the carbon footprint problem that uh, that Ethereum and some other blockchains have. Uh, and so, it's all about uh, scaling more transactions per second. It's about uh, greater decentralization. Um, it's about uh, that low carbon footprint. It's also about ultrasound money. Um, Ethereum is moving towards a regime where it becomes a disinflationary uh, currency or, or token. Um, and that's going to drive a, a ton of value into the Ethereum ecosystem. And Joseph, so interesting how you're going to convert most of your proceeds into ETH as well. Uh, thank you for coming on. We hope to talk to you again soon, Joseph Lubin. And be thank sure to check much. out Crypto World. That's CNBC's digital show on all things crypto. Head to cnbc.com slash crypto world. Coming up next, Kathy Wood liquidating her position in one cloud name. We'll talk about it when Tech Check comes right back. Time for a gut check. Buckle up. Uh, Kathy Wood's ARK FinTech Innovation ETF is in the green today, uh, up more than 5%, but it's down more than 40% for the year. Uh, top holdings there include Block, Coinbase, Shopify, and Twilio. But no longer DocuSign. Kathy Wood completely selling that position. This is a stock that's had a rough run in recent months uh, with a 65% decline since September. CEO Dan Springer joined us after the company's Q3 earnings report and told us they're getting back on track for growth. Looks like Kathy Wood is skeptical of that forecast, at least compared, Carl, to what she wants to see. Yep. Uh, we continue on a daily basis, uh, D, to monitor uh, her selling and her buying. Actually selling a little bit of Square now, in addition mm-hmm. to the Twitter that she liquidated, buying a little shop, buying a little Twilio, uh, names that have had a lot of volatility lately, maybe because of her activity in part. It's amazing, though, getting completely out of DocuSign. I mean, this is coming from someone who told us that these were names to hold on to for the very, very long time. What are we, John or Carl? Just a a few, you know, months out from the pandemic, I suppose. So, you know, maybe DocuSign, again, one of these uh, companies that have proved to be more of a feature than a platform. Yeah, uh, difficult, difficult to see how those uh, pandemic trends are going to extend post-pandemic. Also want to get a check on Tesla today. Officially, as you know, opening that German factory today, delivering its first ever German-made cars as it looks to ramp up production. For more on the capacity, uh, the supply chain, the impact on deliveries, go to CNBC.com as we are still hovering above 4,500 on the S&P. Tech Check is back after a quick break. A big move in the battle for market share in digital ads, this time from our own parent company, NBC Universal. Julia is back with us for those details. Julia. 
Well, Deirdre, NBC Universal is making its biggest push yet to compete with the tech giants such as Facebook and Google for digital ad dollars. Now, this morning, NBC Universal is unveiling new ad tools and targeting capabilities that are similar to what those tech giants offer, but for NBC Universal's premium content rather than what's generally user-generated content that dominates those platforms. Now, after Facebook, Snap, and others have struggled with losing access to first-party data in the wake of Apple's operating system change, NBC Universal announcing today the ability to do first-party data targeting across 230 million NBC Universal IDs. Those are people who have interacted with the company digitally. So everywhere from Peacock to Comcast set-top boxes to the Universal Parks. Now, second, the company is also offering more digital tools to buy ads. So small and medium-sized businesses can easily buy spots across NBC Universal's platforms. They can also buy them through other outside ad platforms, including Adobe and Amazon's. And third, NBC Universal is rolling out new ad measurement tools that include streaming to guarantee those ads reach. And then fourth is also launching new ad formats, including live stream commerce ads. NBC Universal showed us this demo of how customers will be able to say shop into an Xfinity remote to buy products directly on their TVs. Now, NBC Universal is presenting this news to advertisers, tech platforms, and the likes of Salesforce right now as it looks to show that the power of big data is no longer the exclusive domain of the tech giants. Now, of course, it's not the only media giant to be chasing digital ad dollars. Paramount has its ad-supported Paramount Plus option as well as Pluto TV. Warner Media has HBO Max with ads, and Disney Plus just announced that it is working on an ad-supported option as well. Guys? Okay, see if it works. Julia, thank you. Miss part of the show? Well, don't forget to follow and subscribe to our podcast. That's the Tech Check Podcast. You can listen anytime, anywhere, wherever you download podcasts. Tech Check is back in a moment. As the Nasdaq outperforms in today's session, it is Chinese tech names leading the way. Pinduoduo is the top gainer on the Nasdaq 100, up nearly 20 percent. You see Alibaba up 12 percent, JD.com, Baidu, NetEase uh, also seeing huge gains. Though we remind you, as we often do, guys, that these names have still been beaten down on a yearly basis amid uh, the clampdown from Beijing on antitrust. Uh, But guys, we have seen this surge in Chinese names now last a few days making up some of those losses, Carl. Yeah, a bit of a bounce. We'll see how, how long it goes. Meantime, uh, one more thing. Robots now poised to take over the roads of San Francisco. Alphabet's self-driving car unit Waymo announcing in a blog post that they're ready to finally introduce their driverless cabs to the city after offering free rides to volunteers since August. company is still waiting on state approval and says that more details will be announced in the coming months. So for now, Phoenix remains the only market, John, where Waymo operates a fully autonomous taxi service. Even after all the data that they've collected, it's still a daunting challenge. I remember at Code, we talked about how especially just the topography in San Francisco makes it extra challenging. Yeah, that and San Francisco, the city has changed quite a bit, D, since this expedition in driverless cars first started. You know, if if I'm going around San Francisco uh, on a business trip, I'm, I'm not sure... I'd feel comfortable necessarily um, 
not driving and not having another human being driving either, just because... You know, the crowd out there has gotten a little crazy since. A little rowdy. Uh, well, you got to get comfortable with having them on the roads. Tons of Waymos and other driverless cars on the roads here. Everywhere you look, Carl. Yeah, it be interesting to see how that develops. We'll get Adobe tonight. Let's get to the judge. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.